0: Praise be to God and uh, thank you Sean for the reading of the scripture and good morning to everyone all right thank you thank you so much uh, brothers and sisters I just want to say right at the outset that uh, I need much grace from the Lord to be able to speak to you this morning so keep me in prayers please <clears throat> so uh, the topic that we have have on hand uh, as was given to us earlier it's the topic of justification by faith the topic of justification by faith it's a tough topic It can get tough, but I try to make it as simple as possible so that we all can look at it from scripture especially because there are other ways of doing it. You can look at it historically as to how the doctrine has been understood, but I just want to look at it purely from scripture for our understanding this morning so that by the end of the sermon we can all glorify God and we can all thank God for the fact that we have been justified by faith. Through our Lord Jesus Christ so with that introduction I just want to share uh, the PPT for us and uh, let me just share that and we will get going is that uh, yeah that's there so the topic of justification <clears throat> by faith let me begin with uh, an introduction and uh, a story especially about a man by the name of Billy Sunday that you you would have heard of. Several of you, in fact, would have heard of him. Billy Sunday was a famous baseball player who was dramatically converted to Christ. Later he became an even more famous evangelist. In preparation for a citywide mission in a large American city, Billy Sunday wrote a letter to the mayor of that city. In that letter, he asked the mayor if he knew for the names of the individuals who had spiritual problems and needed help and prayer. The evangelist later was surprised when he received a parcel from the mayor's office. In the parcel, when he opened it, he found the city's telephone directory. Everybody has problems. Everybody has spiritual problems. Everybody needs help and prayer. Even a casual look at the world quickly reveals man's condition in sin and the fact that humanity has a problem. There are signs of it all over the world. When you look at North America, women and children are sold into slavery. In in Europe uh, ethnic tensions produce warfare and attempted mass killing as well. In the Middle East terrorist attacks are committed in the name of religion. In Asia, thousands of girls are forced into prostitution and then when you look at Africa there are guns and drugs on the streets all around the world people suffer from the greed of the rich the violence of the strong and the cruelty of the proud in spite of man's expectations of building a new society in which peace and prosperity reign the world remains shattered and torn by the effects of sin locally nationally and internationally. So this morning we'll begin with a question. What's our way out of this predicament? What's our way out of this predicament? So this morning's message is about God's answer to the problem of humanity. We're going to talk about salvation. Salvation from sin and death through the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only hope for our wretched race is for Jesus to save us from our sin by grace through faith for the glory of God. <clears throat> Let me begin with a quote from Charles Ryrie. that's a picture of Dr. Ryrie, one of the clearest thinkers that the Christian faith has produced. He says this about salvation. Soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, must be the grandest theme in the scriptures. It embraces all of time as well as eternity past and future it relates in one way or another to all of mankind without exception it even has ramifications in the sphere of the angels it is a theme of both the old and the New Testaments it is personal national and cosmic and it centers on the greatest person our Lord Jesus Christ that's important it centers on the greatest person our Lord Jesus Christ When we look at the broadest meaning of salvation as used in scripture the term salvation involves the total work of God by which he seeks to rescue or deliver man from the ruin, doom and power of sin and he grants to man the wealth of his grace which includes eternal life it also includes provision for abundant life now and also eternal glory in the future. So salvation, or in other words, rescue by God, or in other words, deliverance is a very broad term. This salvation that Christ purchased for us in his death has manifold facets, multi-dimensional facets, because it has to answer a multi-dimensional need. And that's where you have on the slide, all of those, uh, several of those multi-dimensions that uh, we just mentioned. In redemption, we are liberated from captivity to sin by the ransom price of Christ's death. In forgiveness, our debt is canceled as -hmm. it's been paid in full in Christ's death. In reconciliation, we are brought from a state of enmity to a state of being in fellowship with God. In adoption, we become God's children. In justification, we are declared righteous before God the judge because of Christ's substitutionary death and the gift of righteousness that he gives us. So this morning, we're gonna look at primarily just one dimension of salvation and that is justification. Although we will certainly touch upon a few others as well because they're all interconnected. The story of salvation that lies on the surface of the biblical narrative, hear me please. The story of salvation that we've been seeing right from Genesis and that lies on the surface of the biblical narrative, is undergirded by a number of diverse yet interconnected themes and in looking at the theme of justification this morning for lack of time I want to highlight just one of those themes that undergirds uh, the story of salvation that's on the surface of the biblical narrative there are two central figures in the bible the first one is Adam Although other characters receive far more attention in the Old Testament, especially like Abraham and Moses and David, for example, none of them, I would say, plays a role as significant as Adam's. The figure of Adam stands over all of them. You know, when we teach the Old Testament, we usually say he is the problem who will not go away, so to speak. He explains why the human race plunges into sin after him. He's the explanation for why people do not obey God when they are told explicitly what he wants them to do. After all, if Adam did not obey in his innocence, what is going to happen to people living under his curse when they are given commands from God? Adam explains sin and death because through his disobedience, says Paul, both came to the human race. And his act of disobedience determines the relationship of all of his children before God. Now when we come to the second figure <clears throat> we see that this figure is larger than Adam and yet also called Adam a second Adam or a last Adam while Adam was called the son of God that was in Luke that's in Luke chapter 3 now this one is also called God's son the second Adam or the last Adam but this one is a beloved son of God who pleases his father in every way and is accepted by him As Adam's disobedience alienated his children from God, so will the second Adam's obedience be the way that will make right that relationship. Through the first Adam, we were made sinners. Through the second, we are made righteous. So in Adam, we die. In Christ, we live. The story of two Adams is one of the foundations upon which the entire story of redemption unfolds everyone talks about stories these days now um, this is truly I want to say is a big story in the big picture of the Bible that we have been studying and when you look at the Bible it can be followed forward and backward across scripture the after-effects of the first Adam flow beneath the accounts of Noah and Abraham and David and Moses and the life and experience of Israel it is what leaves each of those stories incomplete it is why there's no resolution in the Old Testament narrative at the same time the promise of the second Adam echoes once in a while throughout the Old Testament though often in no more than a whisper but it certainly echoes and it pushes and thrusts the grand narrative forward by holding out ultimate hope in the face of sin in the face of betrayal by people and in the face of failure of people. So think about these two atoms as we move forward. Now let's look at what Paul says about these two atoms and glean some insights from what he has to say. In Romans chapter 5 verses 12 through 21, which by the way is one of the most difficult passages to interpret in all of Pauline writings, in that passage he explains the hope that believers have in Christ's victory over Adam's sin. Hear me please. He explains the hope that believers have, I'm sorry, in Christ's victory over Adam's sin. Let me set the context here. In verses 1 through 11, he argues that the hope of the believers is secure because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5. Now, when we come to chapter 5 and verses 12 through 21, he begins to talk about two main powers or two main enemies that threaten to crush the hope or quash the hope of believers. And those two are sin and death. These two powers were introduced into the world through the sin of Adam. And these two powers have dominated the human race ever since. But the hope of believers, says Paul, is not dashed by sin and death. Why is that? Because Jesus Christ has conquered both powers and in doing so, he has proven that his impact on history is greater than Adam's impact on history. Did you hear that? In crushing sin and death by his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ has proven that his impact on history is greater than than Adam's. Two Adams have exerted their influence on human history, but the impact of the second Adam is greater than that of the first Adam. And Paul's point is this, that believers will experience the hope of the glory of God because we are now in Christ rather than in Adam. To emphasize this, Paul draws a contrast between Adam and Christ in this passage. Romans 5 verses 12 uh, 12 through 19, he, I'm sorry 12 through 21 he draws a contrast between Adam and Christ I think I've got the reference wrong there uh, but I've just put those verses that are needed verses 15 through 19 five times the outcome of Adam's trespass is hammered home I've highlighted for you what Paul says about what Adam has done for the human race now look at look at uh, what he's saying in verse 15 at the top of the slide Many died because of his sin, this is Adam. In verse 16, his sin brought condemnation to all. In verse 17, death reigned over all human beings. In verse 18, all people were condemned because of his one trespass or one sin. And verse 19, by virtue of his sin, many were made sinners, many were made sinners. Five times the outcome of Adam's sin, Paul is hammering home. Many died, condemnation to all, death reigned over all human beings. Uh, All people are condemned because of his one trespass and many were made sinners. But the work of Christ is even greater because it conquered and reversed the consequences of Adam's sin. Look at what Paul says about it. And I've highlighted that in green on the slide. His grace and gift abounded for many. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 15, His grace and gift abounded for many. In verse 16, His grace brought justification where Adam introduced condemnation. In verse 17, Instead of death reigning, believers reign in life by virtue of the grace of Jesus Christ. In verse 18, the righteous act of Jesus Christ brought justification and life for all and in verse 19 through Christ's obedience the many are now made righteous the many are now made righteous hear me please from this passage we can safely deduce one thing there are only two kinds of people in the world only two kinds of people in the world those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ, those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Regardless of the vast differences in culture and ethnicity, philosophy and ethics, religion and morals and however else you want to divide humanity, everyone is under the curse that fell on Adam or they are forgiven and accepted by God in Christ Jesus. It comes down to two men and how the disobedience of the one makes many sinners and how the obedience of the other makes many righteous. This is how the Bible, and especially Paul, portray all of humanity. And I wanna start with one verse from this passage as we delve into the topic of justification, the word that we've used many times and also seen Paul use in the references that we've seen. Romans chapter 5 verse 18, therefore as one tresp- trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now picture this scene with me. An accused criminal stands before an unbiased judge. He is about to receive his just sentence. And the legal proceedings begin with a court official reading out the laws of the land. And as this criminal listens, he begins to realize that he is doomed to be condemned. For what it turns out, he has violated every single law in the book. Whatever the charge, he is certain to be found guilty. Now when the judge turns to the criminal and asks how he pleads, the man is speechless. He stands before the judge in mute terror, unable to utter anything in his defense. This is the desperate legal predicament described in the opening chapters of the book of Romans. All of mankind stands in the dock. you and I stand in the dock with all of humanity, the religious and the irreligious, Jews and Gentiles, believers and atheists, everyone must appear before God's throne for judgment. And the standard for God is God's perfect law. The standard for his justice is his perfect law. And by that standard, everyone deserves to be condemned because Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not even one. And when the law is read, therefore, every commandment is an accusation for us. There is nothing we can say in our defense look at what Paul says in Romans 3 19 and 20 whatever the law says it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law rather through the law we become conscious of sin through the law we become conscious of sin The problem of humanity is sin it's plain and simple let me say that again the problem of humanity is sin that was your problem that was my problem we are guilty sinners who deserve nothing except God's wrath there is nothing we can do to save ourselves God's law cannot save us it can only condemn us because we cannot keep it and therefore when we stand before God for judgment There's not the slightest chance that we can be accepted on the basis of anything we have done. This is not a trial in which we are innocent until we are proven guilty. Instead, it is a trial in which we have already been proven guilty and must remain guilty until we are declared righteous by God Himself. It is only when we recognize how desperate our situation is from a legal standpoint that we can even begin to understand the biblical doctrine of justification. It is only when we see the stark and ugly reality of our sin, that we are really ready to turn to God for help, specifically for forgiveness of sins and the righteousness that Christ alone can give. My dear brothers and sisters, I have a plea this morning. As you listen to God's word, let me remind all of us, the perfect requirement for this message both on my part and your part is not much scholastic learning but a conscience impressed with a sense of our actual condition as sinners before a holy God. We are sinners without any defense before a holy God. So let let me just delve into the topic of justification a little further as we have introduced the topic so far. First of all, I want to talk about the centrality of justification it is called the strong rock and foundation the centrality of justification like i said at the beginning there is more to salvation than justification alone yet without exaggeration i think it's very important so important that it holds a place near the center of the gospel justification is one of the central themes of scripture especially the new testament Let me explain why. In the New Testament, various forms of the word justify, the Greek word is dikaiou, they appear more than 200 times. In the New Testament, the word justify and various forms of it, they appear more than 200 times and the frequent occurrence of this vocabulary serves to show the importance of justification in biblical theology. Also when you look at church history, the centrality of justification has been recognized by many theologians For example, the English reformer Thomas Cranmer described it as a strong rock and the foundation of Christian religion, which is from where where I took uh, my little title for this particular section. It is a strong rock and foundation of Christian religion. Perhaps most famously of all, Martin Luther called justification, the chief article of Christian doctrine. So that when justification has fallen, he says, everything has fallen. So whether we think of justification as the hinge, the foundation or the standing and falling article of salvation, I want to say this morning that there is no hope of salvation without it. On another occasion Martin Luther said that the doctrine begets, nourishes, builds, preserves and defends the church of God and without it the church of God cannot exist even for an hour is what Martin Luther said. That's the centrality of justification. It is the rock and the foundation. Secondly, we come to the meaning of justification. It is to declare righteous. To declare righteous. Justification is central to the gospel because it answers the fundamental question. Hear me please. It answers the fundamental question. How can a sinful human being be declared righteous before a holy God? How can a sinful human being Be righteous before a holy God and that is answered by justification the vocabulary of justification comes from the law court where to justify is a declarative verb in its noun form justification is a legal word it refers to a person's judicial standing now listen to me very carefully please it refers to a person's judicial standing The biblical terms associated with justification find their origin in legal relationships. Like I mentioned, the Greek verb dikaiou, which means to justify is essentially a forensic term that denotes basically a sentence of acquittal. It is passing a sentence of acquittal on somebody. So to justify is to render a favorable verdict to declare a person to be in the right, to announce forgiveness in legal terms. In short, justification is vindication. It is a decision of the court stating that someone has a right relationship to God and his law. It is the pronouncement that as far as the law is concerned, the defendant or the criminal is not guilty, but he is innocent. That's the meaning of justification. Let me explain it uh, from another point of view. It is by contrasting it with its opposite. The opposite of justification is condemnation. To condemn somebody is to declare that a person is unrighteous. It is a judicial verdict that as far as the law is concerned that that person is guilty. Let me clarify something here. This act of condemnation is not what makes a criminal guilty his own actions make him guilty and he becomes guilty the very moment he violates the law so when he is finally condemned the court simply pronounces him to be what he is already a guilty sinner justification is the opposite of condemnation to justify is to pronounce a verdict of innocence in justification a person is not made righteous but he is declared righteous, it is a legal transaction, let me say that again, in justification a person is not made righteous, he is declared righteous, so justification is not a process, it is an act or it is a declaration by God himself, it is not the impartation of righteousness but the imputation of righteousness by faith alone, I'll explain that a little later but for the moment let me repeat that, justification is not the impartation of righteousness to somebody it is the imputation of righteousness because of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so the true meaning of justification is legally to declare righteous it is not actually to make righteous it is legally to declare righteous and this can be demonstrated easily from scripture let me take one verse from the old testament and then one from the new for lack of time and then explain why we think it is legally to declare righteous. In the book of Deuteronomy in old in the Old Testament Deuteronomy 25 verse 1 the Bible says that when men have a dispute they are to take into court and the judges decide between them acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. Now hear me please a judge obviously does not make a person guilty He simply declares him to be guilty, thus condemning him to his sentence. Now by analogy, the word acquit here in the Hebrew means to justify, which means to declare righteous. When we turn to the New Testament, we find justification used in much the same way. As in the Old Testament, to justify is the opposite of to condemn in the New Testament as well. Now this is very clear from, ex- from the example that we saw especially in Romans chapter 5 where Paul draws a contrast between the sin of Adam and the gift that we have in Christ Jesus. Romans five sixteen, Paul says this the judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. To justify then means to declare that a defendant is innocent of a charge. You see how in this verse Paul is seeing justification as the opposite of condemnation? Let me give you an example or an illustration that may clarify things here. I was invited to speak at a wedding in Mysore some time ago. I was sitting on stage and so from a close proximity I got to watch the couple standing before the minister reciting their vows. Near the end of the ceremony, the ministry the minister declared this he said as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ and by the authority vested in me by the state of Karnataka I now pronounce you man and wife instantly they were legally husband and wife if you realize just a few seconds ago they had been an engaged couple just an engaged couple but now they're married nothing inside them actually changed when those words were pronounced but their status changed before god before the law before their family and friends but i want to say one more thing and that's a different whole different doctrine called sanctification but i want to make a statement here my please the implications of that simple declaration for that couple are lifelong and life-changing as well But when the minister spoke those words, it was only a legal declaration. In the context of salvation, justification is God's declaration that a person is acceptable in his sight and now stands rightly before him in his presence. The person stands rightly before God in God's presence. Now there's one more uh, aspect that we need to understand about justification. Now the picture is just for our understanding of the doctrine, so don't read too much into it, please. Justification means something more than acquittal. We've been talking about the fact that justification is to declare righteous, it's an acquittal. But let me explain a little more about justification here. To acquit is to declare a person, not guilty. So justification in the biblical terms is God's legal declaration that on the basis of the sinless life and the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ received by faith, a sinner is as righteous as his own beloved son. Christ and his righteousness, his righteousness is imputed, is credited to the account of the sinner when he places his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so that when the sinner now stands before God he stands before him not in his own righteousness but he stands before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ and he's accepted just as his own beloved son is accepted because God looks at him through the lenses of the righteousness of Christ that's what is the meaning of justification. What is the basis of justification? The basis for justification is Jesus' sinless life and sacrificial death. Let me explain that here. On what legal basis does God grant the gift of his righteousness? The Bible teaches that God justifies the wicked. God justifies the wicked. This is Romans chapter 4 and verse 5 but if we are in fact wicked, how can he declare us to be what we are not is the question that comes to our minds. And how can he justify the wicked without being considered wicked himself? It is impossible for a righteous God simply to overlook or to excuse sin. So if God intends to justify sinners, he must have some legitimate judicial grounds for doing so. How then does God maintain his righteousness while at the same time justifying the ungodly the unjust the wicked the answer to this theological problem is that God justifies sinners on the basis of the sinless life and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ to say that Jesus lived a sinless life is to say that he kept the law of God in all of its perfection without ever committing even one slight transgression The scripture says in 1 Peter 2, he committed no sin nor was any guile found in his mouth. Jesus lived the righteous life that God requires. Also, when we receive Jesus by faith, his righteousness counts for us as if we ourselves have lived the righteous life that God requires. And by virtue of his perfect life, when Jesus died on the cross, he offered a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And this too is part of the basis for our justification. As Paul says in Romans 3, we just read that this morning. We are justified freely by by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. So it is by his life blood that Jesus secured our justification. And as Paul goes on to say in Romans 5, 9, we have been justified by his blood. There is no justification without crucifixion. The gospel thus grounds the gift of saving righteousness in the sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has dealt justly with our sin by punishing it in the person of the crucified Christ. He has also dealt justly with us by declaring us to be righteous in Christ. God accomplished this justifying work through the cross in order to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now there is a transaction that has taken place and that is called imputation and that's the word we've been using so far. It's very simple to impute is to credit something to someone's account. To impute is to credit something to someone's account. Our sin, look at the arrows there, was imputed to Christ and he was condemned in our place his righteousness that he got because of his perfect life is imputed to us and we are justified and thus in justification God proves his justice by dealing justly as well as mercifully with sinners only because of the cross of Jesus Christ that's the basis for justification. Very quickly let's move the means of justification the means of justification when we look at Romans chapter 3 we see that faith is mentioned at least six times here and I've highlighted uh, one of the words is believe but that's also fine but faith and believe both of them together they use about uh, six times at least in this passage (laughs) this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, says Paul in 3.22. What this passage is emphasizing over and over again is essential to the gospel. We are justified by faith. We are justified by faith, not by works. People sometimes wonder what they must do to justify themselves before God. The answer is there is nothing we can do except have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ this is where the Christian faith differs from every other religion every merely human attempt to attain righteousness it is this difference which is so hard for unbelievers to understand because the question in their minds is isn't there something we can do to make ourselves good enough for God and the Bible says there is nothing all we need to do is place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now a staggering example of humanity's misplaced confidence in works to justify comes from the epitaph of a first century tomb. This is the epitaph translated from a first century tomb. Let me read for you uh, how people have confidence in works, of course, a misplaced confidence in works to justify them. Here lies Regina she will live again, return to light again, for she can hope that she will rise to the life promised as a real assurance to the worthy and the pious in that she has deserved to possess an abode in the hallowed land. This your piety has assured you. Now hear me please. This your piety has assured you. This your chaste life, this your love for people, this your obedience of the law, your devotion to your wedlock, the glory of which was dear to you. For all these deeds, your hope for the future is assured. There's an epitaph found on a first century tomb. So Regina's epitaph is typical, especially for people who are religious. It assumes that righteous deeds are the best and the only guarantee that someone will make it to heaven. Yet anyone who hopes to gain acceptance from God by keeping the law fails utterly. You know it from experience, I know it from experience, and the Bible says it emphatically, as well. The Philippian jailer in Acts 16 asked the Apostle Paul a very basic question about salvation. What must I do to be saved? And Paul said believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. In other words there is nothing we can do to justify ourselves to God. The only righteousness he accepts comes apart from the law. Thus the only thing we can do is put our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation if we trust in him and in his justifying work on the cross then God will declare us righteous we are acceptable to God not by keeping his law but by trusting in the only man who ever did and that is our Lord Jesus Christ and so when the Bible says we are justified by faith or sometimes it also says we are justified through faith it is saying that faith is the instrument Or the means of our justification, the channel by which we receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now J.I. Packer, who is now with the Lord, he said once, faith is the outstretched empty hand that receives the uh, righteousness by receiving Christ. It is the outstretched empty hand that receives righteousness by receiving Christ. And the passage that we read, Paul says in Romans 3, 27 and 28, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith, says Paul. For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart sorry, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. If we are justified by works, or even faith plus works, then salvation would be something to boast about. As it is, however no one will ever be able to boast of making it to heaven on the strength of his or her own merits. Next we come lastly to the results and implications of justification and we'll take these as the applications for us. Firstly because we are justified by faith we have peace with God. Isn't that wonderful? The relationship was broken because of Adam's sin we were in a state of enmity with God and now the relationship that was broken by sin has been restored in Jesus Christ we have peace with God secondly there is a sure and certain hope of a future beyond this present world we have a sure hope Mm -hmm. beyond this world beyond the grave in the resurrection of Jesus Christ number three we have an assurance based on the truth that as believers we are righteous before God through Christ's obedience and blood. Number four, we are adopted into God's family. We are the children of the Most High God. Number five, we become members of the body of Christ. We don't have to stay away from the covenant community. We are now part of the very covenant community of God which is the church of God we become members of the body of Christ we don't have to be weighed down with a burden of guilt and despair because we have an assurance that we have been justified by faith by God himself number seven we know that we don't have to strive for approval or acceptance because we have already been accepted and loved in Jesus Christ number eight This doctrine gives glory to God, in fact, all glory to God, and leaves the justified sinner in wonder, love, praise and amazement. And this morning, I want to say this as as humbly as I can to myself and to all of us. Let's take this seriously, that we have not been justified by our works, it is by faith in the work of Christ that we have been justified. And therefore, let's be in wonder and awe of the grace of God in our lives. Lastly, we understand that faith—the faith, the faith uh, that the faith alone that justifies—is a faith that works as well. The faith alone that justifies is a faith that works as well. What do I mean by that? A true justification produces good works. Faith and works do not together produce justification. So justification is not faith plus works. Rather, faith justifies. And produces good works so faith gives justification plus good works and these are some of the implications or the results of justification let me finish this with a personal illustration and uh, thank you for the patience and uh, I thank God for the grace that has been given to me this morning to be able to speak although it was difficult Let me end this with a very personal story. A few days ago, Ange, uh, my wife, was reading a kid's book to our boys and she was sitting on a sofa and I was sitting opposite opposite them and just watching the expression of my boys because I just loved it. And The book is called Found. It's a story based on Psalm 23. Both the boys, especially Asher, listened with rapt attention. They listened with rapt attention as, uh, as Ange read this story. And I sat there watching their expressions as she read the book to them and explained the story. It's a story based on Psalm 23, like I said. In the story, there comes a point when the little lamb wanders off and falls off a cliff onto a rock. He's helpless. And as Ange described the helpless situation of the lamb to the boys, I saw the shock on Ash's face. If he could have vocalized his emotions, he would have said he was worried about the well-being of that little lamb. And he certainly was from his expressions. It seemed like the tension was mounting for him when Anne said, but the little lamb need not worry. Why? Because a shepherd has come searching for him to rescue him. You should have seen the relief and joy on Ash's face when she said that. And I, I wish I could have captured that on a, on my phone but I didn't at the right moment. Yes, the shepherd has come to rescue the little lamb. Brothers and sisters, we began with the question, what's our way out of this predicament that we are in? Let's be glad this morning. that The shepherd has come to lift us up from where we are to himself. The gift of righteousness is available to everyone who believes and receives the gospel. And John says it so beautifully to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Brothers and sisters I want to thank you for your patience and uh, let's pray as we close. Father God we want to thank you this morning for reminding us of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, the central aspect of which is justification that we just studied a lot. As we stand in the dock before you a holy righteous God, a judge who is righteous We have nothing to say in our defense, O Lord. We are filthy. We are doomed to destruction. And every commandment of the law, as it is read out, is an accusation to us. Because we have broken all of those commandments. But we want to thank God that through Jesus Christ, we have been declared righteous. Although we are not righteous. Although we cannot... In any way become righteous by our deeds before you although we cannot in any way by our credentials or by deeds come into your presence in your grace and because of the work of your son both in his life and in his death we have been declared righteous and his righteousness has been given to us and we are accepted this morning in your sight in your presence, just as your beloved son is accepted. What a glorious thing the gospel is, Lord, and what a glorious hope we have in Christ Jesus. Help us to be in wonder and in amazement of this glorious gospel for the rest of our lives, even unto eternity. Singing praises to you, crying out to you, praises because we couldn't have done this ever on our own. And we want to thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who is our savior, who is our shepherd, who's come searching for this little lamb which is each one of us seated and he has lifted us up from that valley unto himself all by his own effort. Thank you for the grace given to each one of us, Lord, to be able to understand this glorious gospel and to be enabled to receive this gospel as well, Lord. Even that, is because of your grace father i pray for each and everyone who's been listening to me this morning i pray O Lord, that uh, you would give them a fresh new understanding of what the gospel is and the glory of the gospel in their lives help us never to take it for granted help us always to be in wonder and awe of our lord jesus christ your glorious son i also this morning pray for anyone who may be listening who does not know you personally and who is not appropriated in his or her life this glorious gospel of Jesus and be in Christ and justified in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to thank you for this morning. We also pray for the second session. We pray for your hand of blessing upon the speaker and all of us who are going to listen to it a lot. Thank you once again for our Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.